Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, friends. This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 120. In some cases, you can tell more of the truth through fiction, if that makes sense. I mean, more of a deeper truth, maybe, rather than a quote-unquote literal truth. Jonathan Parks Ramage is a Los Angeles-based novelist, screenwriter, and journalist. His debut novel, Yes, Daddy, is out today, and Amazon Studios is currently adopting the book for television. So if you're not someone who likes to read books, just wait for the TV show. His writing has been widely published in such outlets as Vice, Slate, Out Magazine, W Magazine, L, and Medium. He's lectured on journalism and creative nonfiction at Fordham University, and he's also an alumnus of the 2018 and 2019 Breadloaf Writers Conferences. Jonathan and his screenwriting partner Marla Mandel recently sold their musical feature film screenplay, The Big Gay Jamboree, to Paramount Pictures. The film is executive produced by Academy Award-nominated actress Margot Robbie under her Lucky Chap production banner. The duo has also sold television pilots to ABC and Pop TV. I am thrilled to have Jonathan on the podcast today. We're talking mostly about this new book, Yes, Daddy, which I think is like the gay read of the summer. (laughs) It's a thriller. It's really dark. But if you're anything like me, you need a summer novel to keep you up at night and kind of shock you, all of those things. I I mean, I think think this is it. Uh, Yes, Daddy follows an ambitious young man named Jonah who is searching for a way to get out from under the thumb of his religious upbringing. He's lured by an older, successful playwright into a dizzying world of wealth and an idyllic Hamptons home, where things take a nightmarish turn. Jonathan will talk more about that. Some content warnings for this book and for this conversation right up front. Sexual violence and sexual abuse, religious upbringing, conversion therapy, and a lot of churchy stuff. So, I mean, all those things are kind of mashed together in this book in really fascinating ways. I loved it. (laughs) And I am just so thrilled that more books like this are kind of coming out into the world. No announcements today, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Jonathan, hi, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. It is a true honor to be here. I am so excited to have you on the show, so 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 thanks for joining. Yeah. So to start, question I ask everyone, how do you identify and how has your faith helped form that identity? I would identify as a spiritually searching queer man. And to answer your second question, it's a little bit of a long answer, but um, I was born into a religious family. Both my parents were actually ministers, and they were part of this uh, denomination called the UCC, United Church of Christ, which 
happens to be a very, a fairly liberal and affirming denomination. However, in the town I grew up in, we were in a community which was very conservative. I grew up in a very small town in Massachusetts called Whitensville. And I came out as gay in eighth grade. She was an early bloomer, honey. And it caused, I mean, my parents were very supportive, but also I was in eighth grade, which is I think kind of a vulnerable time just in general, um, as anyone who's been in eighth grade can tell you, you know, it's never fun middle school. Um, so I was getting bullied a lot at school. And I think that my parents also didn't want to suddenly thrust the preacher's kid into the spotlight as being gay, especially because we lived in a small conservative town. So my parents decided that it would be best if we didn't tell anyone in the church that I was gay. And it's like, this is something that I actually hadn't really unpacked until, you know, I was talking to my therapist, uh, not even so recently. I mean, so it was this weird thing of like, your parents accept you, but they're afraid for, you know, their jobs, the stability of their family, the safety of their child. So I think in order to protect me, they basically said, you can't publicly announce who you are, even though you know who you are. And so that was, I think, kind of a painful thing. And I just kind of disconnected from the church. I stopped going to the church. It seemed like there was this break. It was just like, this thing isn't for you. And I just kind of like put it away in a little box. And it was like, oh, well, church just doesn't work out for me. Also, I'm gay. And like, no one who's gay really goes to church. And so I'm just not even going to think about that. And I don't really have a spiritual life. And it wasn't until years and years later, where I discovered you know, the New Abbey faith community that I'm a part of now, which is obviously a very progressive church with a huge queer population and a commitment to intersectional social justice, that I really kind of rediscovered my faith and had a spiritual awakening in a way that I had never had previously in my life. It felt like something in me had finally resolved. Um, it felt like, oh, wow, this can be for me this is something that actually deeply resonates with me. And that, of course, makes sense because I grew up as a preacher's kid and I just kind of had shut this part of myself down. So, yeah, that's a very abridged answer of kind of like a lifelong journey. So eighth grade, your parents say to you, let's not tell anyone about this, which is so interesting because I feel like for a lot of people's stories, it's it's like the we ourselves say, like, we're not going to tell anyone about this. (laughs) But to have your parents say, like, we love you, this is great, but, like, let's not tell anyone. I mean, what was that like for you to have your parents both support you, but also say, like, there's something so bad about this that we're, like, we're just going to keep it a secret? It was really complicated. I think that it just, it did. It caused this kind of, like spiritual shutdown in a way. And I know that they did it out of love. And like, to be quite frank, I mean, their livelihood, the way that they supported us as a family could also have been at risk. I mean, depending on how the church reacted, I I can understand the reasons for doing it, but how it felt was weird. I mean, I did have this secret that I couldn't, that I couldn't tell anyone. And I think they were just so determined to protect me, but it did also create, I think, some shame around that moment and I was already just feeling so much shame because it's also eighth grade like I was like so awkward and like bullied and like 
oh my God, it was, it was hell. Um, <laughs> eighth grade experience. And so, you know, it was weird. It was like my family was, you know, this tiny little unit where I could be myself, but there weren't a lot of other places where I could really be myself. Like I went to this private school, which was, you know, about 45 minutes away from my house at the time called Worcester Academy, which was a very conservative private school. And I was bullied and, you know, I couldn't really be myself there. And then I came home and I couldn't be myself at church. So I just stopped going to church and I could be myself around my parents and they loved me. But yeah, it was this kind of, it was difficult. And, and again, like I never even questioned it. It was just like, well, this is the way it has to be. And so it wasn't until much later that I kind of had this spiritual awakening that I kind of like looked back and I was like, wow, well, it makes sense that I'm so fascinated and so invested in religion because my parents are ministers. <laughs> I like, like, where is all this coming from? Where is this sudden interest coming from? I wonder, maybe it's because I grew up in a religious household. It's also interesting to me that well, I mean, first, like, y- you have a book that's coming out, that's out. I mean, by the time this airs, it's out. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations. Like, just a, such a huge deal. And it, it is so interesting to me that the main character has this evangelical Christian background that is a major part of the story. Yes. And I, I mean, I, I have a lot of friends who are evangelical. And actually, I mean, it is bizarre to say, but my path towards my spiritual reawakening was through an evangelical church, oddly. You know, I have my novel coming out, but I'm also a journalist. And I had a few friends who had been through a lot of trauma in the evangelical church. And I was seeing the kind of the proliferation of these kind of hipster, for lack of a better word, mega churches, which, you know, are not affirming, but appeal to liberal Los Angeles citizens uh, through their branding and their obsession with sneakers and fashion and celebrity. And and I was seeing this kind of like hipster church culture, which people didn't really understand how this kind of toxic undercurrent of, you know, misogyny, racism, homophobia, you name it, honey, the evangelical church has it. So I did this kind of immersive long form piece where I went to Reality LA, which is evangelical megachurch in Los Angeles. Hmm. And I embedded myself in the community for about like six months, going to services, sitting down with a pastor, going to small groups. And, you know, I went in as a journalist um, and I was upfront. I was like, you know, I just am here to explore facets of the community. There are a lot of aspects of your theology that I don't agree with. But, you know, going into this, I want to be a part of your community. And to his credit, the pastor was like, yeah, that sounds good to me. And what was so unmooring about that experience was that the longer I spent in this evangelical community, the more I just started having this awakening and and experiencing the mindfuck of this group of people who on the one hand were so welcoming and so intelligent and so smart and had lots of interesting things to say about theology, of course. But then on the other hand, there was this extreme toxicity and the fact that I could not be gay were I ever to go there. So it was just this very kind of bizarre thing to have this kind of lifelong, you know, a lifetime in the making spiritual awakening, 
but in a setting which was not supportive of who I really was as a person. So it was this really weird tension I began to feel within myself. And it felt very kind of like unsafe and scary and weird. And, you know, the more I started to kind of like question my own spirituality, you know, the more pressure you get from, I mean, the pastor who could just like smell a saved soul. I mean, I'm being overly cynical, but you know what I mean? Like, like it was (laughs) like, there's nothing more exciting than like the potential of saving a soul to your evangelical megachurch pastor. So, so it was kind of like very intense thing. And I wrote this piece, this essay called Jesus, Mary and Joe Jonas for medium and just expressed kind of what I'm talking to you about now is this kind of bizarre spiritual awakening in this kind of unsafe, toxic setting, which was like very unmooring for me personally. And after that came out, someone emailed me just out of the blue and said, Hey, I actually go to this. I read your article. I I really identify with a lot of what you're talking about. I actually go to this church called New Abbey, which is really affirming and really welcoming and, and determined to kind of really mend the rift between queerness and Christianity in a really positive way. Would you consider going here? So I said, Oh yeah, that sounds good. And so I was like, Oh, I want to also do an article about, being queer and being Christian. And so that's why I started going there. And then I just kept going. (laughs) It was like, oh, actually, Twist, I'm actually just going to go here now. Um, And I remember Britt Barron, the... Uh, we love we love Brit here. So. Yes, <laughs> I love Brit too. And and there was just this one. I mean, I was just the article was already written. I was just going there, and she was like, "They have this thing called meet an interesting person, where someone in the congregation will get up and and you know tell the story of kind of how they came to be there." And I just and she was like, one day she's like, "Oh my god, our interesting person fell through. Do you want to do it?" And I was like, "Gulp, um, sure." And so I got up and kind of described my journey to the doorsteps of new abbey and just kind of like broke down in unexpected tears and it was it was just this kind of like full circle moment of me saying you know i started coming here for an article and then i just kept coming and this is a really healing experience for me so that's a very long way of answering your question of you know why i was interested in having you know, a character who comes from an evangelical background, because I had kind of found my way indirectly towards a spiritual awakening through evangelical and post-evangelicalism, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it felt like something I really could identify with, but it also felt like something really important. I mean, the more people I was in community with who I was talking with who had been through such profound spiritual trauma, you know, I think that it's, it's something that the larger population, secular population often really fails to grasp. So I, I hoped to incorporate this, you know, queer Christian narrative into a, a narrative that also incorporated other themes that would also hopefully cross over beyond just the queer Christian community. So that's kind of what I was hoping for. Right. Cause I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like this definitely is not like a queer Christian book by any stretch. <laughs> no, no, no. 
but it has, I mean, the, this el- these elements and this backstory and, and even hearing you talk about your experience, like going to this church and immersing yourself in that, in that first church and the hypocrisy and, but the allure, like, I mean, that shows up in your book, in, in this character, Jonah's story arc of eventually, I, I don't think this is a spoiler, eventually kind of reintegrating into a Christian community and all of these things that you're talking about, you know, show up in the story, the hypocrisy, the ickiness along with the allure. Like it, it, it's, it's fascinating to me the ways you, you've played with that narrative in this novel. Yeah, I mean, I I think that, you know, regardless of denomination, I think that spiritual trauma is something that just a lot of queer people can relate to. Um, you know, like you said, you know, there's a lot of other things I explore in this book, but that sort of spiritual trauma can be so foundational for us as queer people and can intersect with all sorts of other kind of developmental traumas or things in our past which create kind of the foundation for who you are so it felt really important to explore that and of course the the book you know also explores a lot um, around sexual abuse sexual trauma within the queer community and and you know i think that if you're coming from a background where you've experienced spiritual trauma and you or you lack stability in some way because of what you've kind of endured from spiritual trauma, it can leave you vulnerable to predators, for lack of a better word. I mean, it can leave you vulnerable in ways, you know, that can be really scary. So I also kind of wanted the character to embody that, but also, like you're saying, you know, to have some hope in the end of kind of a reintegration. And, you know, after deconstructing, then reconstructing. And again, you know, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but I, I, I wanted to end on a hopeful note after, you know, we, we see the book, um, we see the character go through so much, much trauma. I mean, I feel like, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, this book really is about trauma. And I mean, both past trauma but also the effects of, I mean, what you're saying, of past trauma on current life, current reality, and, and what it means to have a lack of support, a lack of of structure, of, of resources, of, of, I mean, all of the above that, it, I mean, is so common for, especially for queer folks who came from rigid faith environments. I, I mean, I, I talked to you about this before we started recording, but, but that idea of, like, you're telling so much truth. <laughs> In this story and and the way it plays out is, I mean, I I couldn't put this book down, but it is, it's dark. It's hard to read at times, but it's, there's a lot of truth in it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't want to shy away from the darkness. You know, I wanted to really, to really go there. I mean, to give people who aren't familiar kind of with a basic you know, premise of the book is it's about this young aspiring writer who's broke. Um, he's living in New York City, and he really wants to be a famous writer. And he meets this much older, wealthy, famous writer who, you know, he thinks he's finally found the answer to his prayers that this man can take care of him, um, you know, that he can finally have the support he's never really had in his whole life. So, you know, he quickly lunges into this kind of passionate affair. And then the older man brings him to his like lavish Hamptons compound for the summer where he's drawn into a web of 
sexual abuse and assault. So like you're saying, it, it really explores a lot of dark issues. And what was important to me was to create a character that, that felt real within that. You know what I mean? I did not want this to be just like a quote unquote thriller or like something that felt splashy and thin. I wanted, I wanted to really explore the, the kind of depths of trauma and, you know, and also bring LGBTQ people into kind of the Me Too moment, I guess, and, and kind of explore victimhood within the queer community because I feel like, I mean, it's been so wonderful to see kind of these narratives of sexual abuse and assault really come into the light and people finally finding justice, if not through the criminal justice system, at least in kind of like the larger public arena. Um, but I feel like so often the conversations, you know, tend to still be centered on, you know, cisgender women, um, which obviously it's very important to have those narratives out there. But I think it's also very important to diversify those narratives along lines of race, class, ability, gender, sexuality. I mean, all of these identities, I think it's really important to incorporate them into this larger conversation. It's not something that's that's talked about as much. Like, I, I remember several years ago when I was working in community mental health, like our agency went to a training on domestic abuse and domestic violence among queer people. And like the stats were staggering for, for me as a, as a queer person, yeah. <laughs> just like, well, I know this happens, but like, and I don't remember what the stats were, but I remember sitting there and just being blown away by the statistics and being like, why are we not talking about this? Why are we not talking about the amount of, of domestic and partner violence that happens among queer people? It happens a lot. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think part of it is, you know, people who fall to the margins of society are less likely to have their stories told. They're also less likely to be believed and therefore more vulnerable to assault and exploitation. I mean, it's why, you know, Brian Singer, who's a famous Hollywood director who had this kind of ring of sexual abuse that he operated with like other Hollywood power players where he took advantage of really young, often underage boys. And these rumors were around for years and no one did anything about it. And there were multiple times where it, the rumors came out. And again, he just kept directing X-Men movies. Um, and it wasn't finally till I think 20, I want to say 2019 when there was an article in the Atlantic that finally kind of nailed him and, and really kind of brought him down in the Me Too moment. But it took so much effort to get to that point. And I think that that's part of the problem. It's, it's, we don't think of these people, period, people who fall outside of, you know, the normal quote unquote idea of a victim. Um, so we don't think about them, period. And that's why, you know, we don't even as queer people think of ourselves as being potentially victims of sexual abuse and assault. So yeah, so I think that that's, that's something that's, that's so important. And I also think that they're, you know, within the community, I think there are also like, stereotypical ideas about ourselves that cause us it's like oh you know gay men they're just everyone's horny so you know there's no such thing as sexual assault or with you know lesbians it's like well they all just love each other and jump in a u-haul and immediately get in relationships so no one could possibly be used there and i think that 
you know, I think that we have ideas about our own community that probably also prevent us from being aware of, of abuse and assault that happens within the queer community. Have you heard something on Queerology that's made a big impact on your life? Do you now follow one of my guests because you've met them here? Because of the format of Queerology, you get to meet people in a way that lets you relate and connect. There's something uniquely personal and intimate about the conversations that happen here. If this is something you've experienced, then help me keep these conversations going by making a financial gift and becoming a Queerology Active Listener. You'll get access to the Active Listeners Facebook group right away, a place for all of us to continue these conversations throughout the week. All you need to do is jump over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. Choose your gift amount, and you'll be an active listener. It's really easy. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Matthias Roberts. I really look forward to meeting you in the Facebook group. I think something that your novel does so well is exploring the web especially the web that, that Jonah, this character, gets into of that mix between what he himself said yes to, like agreed to, and then what that led to, right? Like, I mean, I think, you know, working as a therapist with <laughs> with, with victims of assault and, and abuse, like those yes moments are so hard and, and so difficult to work with because you know we often say to ourselves like well i i agreed to this when that isn't i mean we didn't agree to be assaulted <laughs> but like you, you get into that that complexity and that web and how helpless and and i mean so well in this book yeah i mean i think that i think that that was really important for me is to kind of examine, you know, the character Jonah starts out kind of conniving at the start, almost. I mean, he, he, he really has this goal of like kind of hooking this much older wealthy person because he has these ideas about what this older wealthy writer can do for him. So he enters very intentionally into this relationship, but then is quickly kind of sucked into a very abusive situation, which he has no responsibility for. So, you know, I think it was important to kind of paint those shades because, because I think still we have this idea of the quote unquote perfect victim that's so pervasive in our society that, that, you know, someone who has done nothing morally wrong and who is just, you know, this kind of ideal, total innocent who just gets sucked into this situation unwittingly. And I don't think that's helpful because I think that everyone is human and, and we all enter into relationships for different reasons. And just because you entered into a relationship consensually doesn't mean that you can't be abused or assaulted or, you know, hurt in that relationship. And so it was really important for me to, to kind of paint that distinction and also really embody that experience because you know, so often, you know, even with the Me Too movement, you saw people still to this day being dismissed. It's like, oh, well, why would that person stick around in that relationship if they were being abused? Or, you know, why didn't they just leave? Because it's hard, because you're manipulated. You're in a toxic cycle of abuse. It's not, it's just like, oh, well, time for me to leave now. That's easy as pie. Like, it's, there are so many kind of complex psychological layers um, that, are present in an abusive relationship. 
And when you're dependent upon someone, it can be really hard to leave as, you know, Jonah, the character is very dependent upon this person. He's dependent upon him for love, security, money. So, you know, I think that, yeah, it was really important for me to kind of, to paint all the nuances and to kind of try to, you know, continue to explode the idea of the quote unquote perfect victim. So I, I mean, I'm so curious because you mentioned you're a journalist and you do a lot of other writing as well. Why this story? I, I know you're talking about it. I, mean, I feel like you've answered that question in some ways throughout what we've talked about, but why this story? Well, I think that the book is not autobiographical, but I would say that it is personal and that these are all the kind of subjects and themes of this book are things that have had a very important impact on my life. You know, whether that's the erotic pull of older men, the power imbalance in those relationships, the potential for toxicity and abuse, um, you know, dealing with queerness and Christianity. So, you know, I think for me, it was a really personal story. I think that's why I wanted to tell it. And I think that, you know, I, I don't think, it, I think, the person who will best know how much of me is in this versus how much of truth, reality, whatever is my therapist. And I think that's probably where I'm going to keep that. But I do think that there is a lot of me in this book and a lot of things that I really kind of passionately wanted to explore, a lot of things that were really meaningful to me within it. And so, yeah, I think I think that's that's why it felt like... There are all these ideas fighting for space in my brain and kind of, you know, all these personal reflections that were kind of fighting to come out at the time that I wrote this. And then I, th- I think that those came out in the novel. So, yeah, I think, does that make sense? Sorry. <laughs> it does. It does. And uh, yeah, it, it makes so much sense because I, and, and I wonder if some of what I'm hearing you talk about is and these are my thoughts and you can tell me whether you agree with them, but like being able to work with personal stuff <laughs> through the medium of fiction and being able to, to process and, and again, tell the truth, but in a way that isn't like a journalist would. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, I think that, I think that in some ways you can almost, in some cases you can tell more of the truth through fiction, if that makes sense. I mean, more of a deeper truth, maybe, rather than a quote unquote literal truth, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That, that the freedom of fiction kind of allows you to explore psychic space through storytelling in a way which maybe goes honestly at a deeper, more subconscious, almost dreamlike level, rather than nonfiction where it's like, I am writing down facts of things that actually happened to me and trying to render those. But I mean, both are, you know, totally noble pursuits, but there is, you know, at least for me when I'm writing and when it's going really well, I enter almost kind of like a subconscious dream state. I know that that's a good writing day if that's what happens. And so I do think that, you know, there's a lot of subconscious shit that really got dragged up in the course of, of writing this. And, you know, I was, talking to my therapist actually about an aspect of this book, which is a little bit more personally aligned with my personal experience. And she said, well, you know, maybe this book is a way of really kind of articulating how that situation truly made you feel 
that makes sense. So, so yeah. And I think that, you know, you know, a lot of times these days we're like, Oh, we like love a fictional story, but that one that's like, you know, really also true. And it's like, I think the truth can be deeper than kind of like surface level salacious details, if that makes sense. Like I'm, I'm, I'm interested in books which feel deeply true rather than like, oh, I can point to all the places where this person's bio lines up neatly here. And I think in a way that kind of undermines fiction. It's kind of like trying to pull back the curtain on the, you know, Wizard of Oz and and kind of point to, well, oh, well, this part is true, this part isn't true. It's more does the kind of collective dreaming of this novel resonate? I think that's kind of the more important question to ask. There's something like the word that's coming to my mind is like atmospheric, like like being able to create the atmosphere of feeling, processing, I mean, whatever, without saying like, here's what literally happened. Like, I'm, I'm like, I'm not hearing you say this is autobiographical. It's not. <laughs> and yet there's something deeply personal about it. And it's so interesting to me, like using fiction as a tool to process things, whether that's trauma, whether that's just life. How did you get into writing? Oh, yeah. I mean, the first book I ever wrote was like when I was probably four years old. And it was a picture book. I still have it. It's called witches and ditches and it was about a group of witches who (laughs) lived in ditches and you know i guess i was just attracted to dark subject material from a young age (laughs) 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 but i've always been attracted to storytelling i think that it can be a really powerful way to work through who you are um i think it can be a powerful tool to explore parts of yourself, but also to make a difference in the world. I think that, yeah, storytelling has always been attractive to me. And I think, honestly, having parents who are preachers contributed to that because stories were always a part of my life every week. I mean, you know, my parents got up on got up in the pulpit and it was stories. It was stories from the Bible. It was stories from our life. It was stories. And I think that you know, you see that and you realize how much stories can shape someone's soul. Um, you know, how stories can affect the way we think, the way we move through the world can, you know, have profound effects on who we are as people. So I think that, honestly, growing up in a household where my parents were ministers had a pretty big effect on my interest in in storytelling. And, you know, more recently, you know, obviously I've worked as a journalist and, you know, a lot of my work in nonfiction was working with activists and organizers and advocates for, you know, various social justice issues. You know, most recently I did a lot of work within the queer Christian community. And, you know, I thought, you know, I've done a lot of nonfiction. Uh, What would it be like to really take kind of some of the things that I'm I'm working with in a nonfiction space and then also bringing them into a fictional space. How could I reach other people or reach the same people in a different way? You know, and I think that in this novel in particular, there's an interiority that I was able to achieve. You know, I'm writing in first person. I'm, I'm, I'm writing this person's thoughts. I'm trying to fill out, 
you know, this person's mind, create a portrait of this person's mind on the page, which you can't really do when you're reporting. I mean, when you're reporting, it's, it's kind of you're looking at picture from the outside and trying to describe that. But when you're writing fiction, you're trying to embody something from the inside. So I think it, for me, you know, deciding to write this novel, I, I just, I wanted to, to approach storytelling just in a, in a different way. The word container is in my mind for some reason. Like there, there's something about like, you're talking about like filling out this person's mind or, or, or like kind of like filling this container or, or letting it be fiction, be a container for something in a processing space that's uh, other than you, but it is you. Like I mean, it, it's I mean, it's a really beautiful idea and hard to put language around like i feel like anyone who's listening who's a writer is like yeah that may like duh and i, I wonder if people who are, are not writers are like what in the world are they talking about but, like, <laughs> <laughs> the best way i can describe it is kind of like i mean i think container is a, is a good word but also for me it's kind of like it's kind of like dreaming it's kind of like living a dream if that makes sense like it's like trying to have a wake wakeful dreaming where i'm embodying someone else's experience who both is and is not me. It's almost like acting too, I suppose. That could be kind of a, a helpful way to describe it. But, you know, so I think a lot of it is, you know, things I'm tr- kind of trying to work through in a metaphoric way. Maybe that's also another way to, to explain it. Um, you know, personal things I'm trying to work through in a metaphoric way through the medium of fiction. So a lot of it comes from me personally. But then, of course, there's like so much regardless of how personal something is, you know, there was so much in here that I felt it important to really, really research as well and really explore a lot of different narratives, both fictional and non-fictional that, you know, talked about trauma and abuse. Um, you know, Chanel Miller's uh, memoir, Know My Name, is a fantastic um, kind of portrait of someone who is a victim of sexual abuse and kind of the trauma also of going through the court system. There is an incredible book called How the Body Keeps the Score, which is just a modern classic when it comes to talking about how we deal with trauma and and how we can metabolize and, and kind of move past it. So there's, it's kind of, you know, the book is an amalgamation of of my own personal thoughts and my own personal feelings and my own personal kind of work that I'm doing on this metaphoric level while also incorporating a lot of real world research um, into other thinkers and other minds. And like speaking of acting, like this is going to the small screen, right? Like this is already being turned into a TV show. Am I? I Yes, 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 yes. Um, Right now there is an adaptation in development at Amazon Studios, which is really exciting. That's so exciting. Yeah, I'm super <laughs> excited. I mean, you know, there's still a lot of development that needs to happen. I hope that it, you know, ultimately goes to series there. You know, there Hollywood is filled with endless hoops, but I feel very blessed to be working with uh, this producer who's queer. His name is Patrick Moran, and he really responded to the material, really understood it. And then we also have a queer writer, director named Stephen Dunn, who's doing the adaptation. He did this a gay indie movie called Closet Monster. He also directed the queer episode of Little America on Apple TV+, which I absolutely adored. And and so I feel very lucky to have, because this is like, I mean, it's intense material, it's sensitive material. 
So it was very important for me to find people who understood it, who were going to take it seriously, who were going to approach it responsibly, you know, and I've, I've really feel lucky to have found that in those collaborators. So yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's so huge. Like from, I mean, Jonathan, I do not remember how we became friends on Facebook, but I mean, it was a while ago and I, I like, I didn't, I mean, I didn't really I don't think we've never met in person, right? I don't Have think we? so. No. Okay. <laughs> My greatest fear is for you to say like, the yes. queer Christian atmosphere floating <laughs> around each other. I feel like we probably didn't even request to be the other's friend. It just kind of happened. <laughs> it just happened. <laughs> happened yeah. magically as it does. <laughs> but I mean, I remember when you made the announcement that like you got this book deal and you did the cover reveal and I was like, Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to read this book. And then seeing like, like announcing the the TV show and Amazon Studios, like it, it's been so cool to follow this person who I'm like I have no idea who this is, but like amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That really means a lot. Thank you. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's just it's it's thrilling and it's fun to see people. I think tell these stories. Like I, I'd be curious in hearing your thoughts on this, but like for so long, I feel like we've been kind of stuck in this narrative of what like queer faith conversations need to look like. And again, not calling this a queer faith book, but you're telling stories and you're you're telling a story of where these things tie in. And, and it's fun to see this work happening in much different ways than it has been happening. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that this queer faith conversation, I I think that it needs to come, because still so many queer people just think that the church is not for them, period. I think it's, you know, which is understandable. There's so much spiritual trauma in the queer community. So I think that there is still a resistance. And it's interesting in the early reviews of this book, you know, so many of them are so positive, but some people really come up against the queer faith aspect of it, finding it unrealistic or like, why would he ever, you know, think of even going back to the church? And and so I think that I think there's still work to be done within the queer community itself of really kind of healing the the collective trauma we've all kind of experienced. Um, I think often at the hands hands of the church. So I, I, I yeah, I think it's important to have these conversations in different spaces, in spaces that are maybe outside of a more internal queer faith space and in a larger the larger kind of arena of a secular space and secular culture to kind of bring these nuances to light and say, actually, you know, you can be queer and Christian. And, and I mean, that's also what I love so much about queerology is it's, we're seeing more and more of these stories come to light in so many different aspects of the culture. And I think what's so beautiful about the work that you do is that you're really engaging people who are part of this kind of cultural surge part of this community which is growing in numbers of this community which is doing such important work and such healing work and so yeah i think that you're also a huge part of that so i'm so grateful to you for that thank you thank you what would be like a piece of writing advice you would give to people listening to this show who are like who are writing fiction who want to write fiction or maybe not even fiction, just write through some of the things we've been talking about today? I mean, I think that the most important thing is to write something 
that you feel like you have to write. Find something that is so important to you and explore that. And I think that that, because that's, those are the things that ring true. And if, if you're trying to write for what you think people want to hear, or you're trying to write because you think this is going to be something that, you know, is really going to be a bestseller or take off, that's not the story that's going to resonate. The story that's going to resonate is the story that matters to you, the story you have to tell. That's what's going to get people's attention because it's going to feel, I think, real. So yeah, I'd say that's the most, I think, important thing. Also, if you don't believe in what you're writing, you're going to have a really hard time writing it (laughs) because it's just going to be miserable and it's not going to, I mean, sometimes if you're working on something, you're like, why isn't this working? Maybe the answer is because you don't believe in it. I think that's, that's also, you know, can be a good sign that like, oh, maybe I should think back and say, oh, what, what do I believe in? What do I want to say? And why is it important for me to say that? Because, like, it's, I mean, it's miserable even when you do believe in it, at least in my experience of writing. <laughs> exactly. Like, like, you're, like, in the middle of it, you're like, I hate this. Um, <laughs> no, exactly. And it's like, and, and, the, and the amount of effort it takes to get anything, I mean, if you're writing because you want to be published, then the amount of effort and hoops you have to jump through to try to get this thing put out into the world are going to be so effortful and going to take so much kind of drive and energy you really want to make sure that you believe in that thing that you're going to spend so much time trying to get out into the world well how can people find your work how can people buy your book it will be available may 18th in bookstores i would i love an indie bookstore i'd say if you have a fave indie bookstore or from them online go in person it's also available on amazon if you must um and honestly anywhere books are sold you can pick up a copy. And then if you want to say hi to me on Insta, I'm also there at uh, JP Rampage. Well, thanks so much for taking the time for joining me. This has been lovely. Such a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for having me. So go pick up a copy of Yes Daddy wherever you buy books and be on the lookout for the TV show coming from Amazon Studios sometime. I don't actually know the production schedule of that. (laughs) You can follow Jonathan over on Instagram at JP Rampage and also keep a lookout for that new movie coming from Paramount Pictures, The Big Gay Jamboree. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is made possible because of you. To find out how you can help keep Queerology on the air by becoming an active listener, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. A really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head over to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next time, y'all, bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.